Today we sit down with the man who created the term evidence-based medicine, Gordon Guyatt, Professor at McMaster University in Canada. Hello, I'm Ray Moynihan and welcome to The Recommended Dose, produced by Cochrane Australia and co-published with the BMJ. In our conversation, recorded at a recent conference in Helsinki, Gordon Guyatt reflects on early dreams of being a novelist, his time as a political candidate for Parliament and the strong influence of two very different parents. But first, evidence-based medicine and how a new approach that started by simply encouraging doctors to look more rigorously at the evidence for what treatments worked and what didn't grew quickly into a global reform movement to better inform all our decisions, provoking a backlash from some medicos affronted by the suggestion they were somehow not already basing their decisions on evidence. And like me, you might be surprised to learn that Gordon's first choice for describing this new approach was scientific medicine, a term he rejected for being even more provocative than EBM. Evidence-based medicine was the second, uh, my second choice as to a name for this, which turned out to be extremely catchy. It was... uh, Catchy and and very provocative too. um, How much was provoked by, how much was of the provocation was in the name or in what we were claiming about it, I'm not sure. When you talk about the provocation, and indeed it was provoking to many people, we were claiming that... The to all the physicians who'd been trained, including the experts, that there was something limited in what they'd been doing all these years because they didn't know how to read the literature and interpret it and apply it. And we were saying to really be give optimal care, you need to do this. So this was a rather disconcerting claim for many people. How did you feel when you watched this term just sort of take off like wildfire? I mean, this is only 20 years ago we're talking about it. It's well, not that long ago. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's now become motherhood, the it, idea of yeah. evidence-based decision-making. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, we talk about evidence-based policy-making across different portfolio yes, areas yes. now. I mean, uh, contract that 20 years for me and, and just tell me how you felt watching that change. Well, um, obviously it was gratifying and exciting and interesting, all those uh, somewhat predictable feelings, I guess I would say there's always the next challenge. So, okay, yes, the term's taking off, but are people really using it properly? Is it just a patina, surface layer? Are people misusing it? You know, you get criticisms of it's been co-opted by the pharmaceutical industry and so on. So, um, yeah, it's lovely to see the term taking off. It'd be even more lovely to see the actual concept taking root, um, which it has to some extent. Um, but there, from at every stage, there are challenges that uh, one is faced with and limitations uh, in terms of what one hopes to achieve and what has actually been achieved. Before we talk about some of those criticisms, i.e. about pharma hijacking it, j- just briefly, do you think that the move to an evidence-based approach 
is actually resulting in improved care for people, for the people listening, their families, their loved ones? Well... What do you uh, think? Uh, yes. So the first thing is um, uh, you, you have had a major focus, and I, to a considerable extent, on conflict of interest. And when I, as a result, when I'm asked a question where I'm immediately hit in the face with my intense conflict of interest, it comes to mind, okay, you know, this is I'm not an objective person to answer that particular question but yes of course I do think uh, I do think that there is a, a markedly improved care that comes from actually giving care that's consistent with the best evidence and and one of the things that came along in terms we, we uh, by the end of the first decade we had real I, we had realized, that there's something that we had missed from the beginning, which was that uh, what we now call one of the three key principles of evidence-based medicine, which is that evidence never in it, never itself tells you what to do. It's evidence in the context of people's values and preferences. So, so I would say, and and that's still uh, getting people. It's. Uh, it's, it turns out to be easier to get people to pay attention to evidence than to get them to uh, appropriately engage in shared decision-making for people's values and preferences. But if you put together the whole package of what we consider EBM, both the attendance to the evidence and the awareness that evidence never itself tells you what to do, it's always in the context of values and preferences. Yes, it's a marked shift to improved care. Let's just take this criticism. Um, a paper in the BMJ a few years ago, is evidence-based medicine in crisis? And one of the key concerns in that article was that the, the, the idea, the concept has been sort of hijacked and a lot of the evidence is produced by vested interests for their own ends. What, how do you respond to that concern? Well, um, it is certainly a concern. We have noted the abuse of the evidence spin um, and what uh, what the evidence-based movement has done is to try to respond to that. So at the conference that we are at at the moment, um, I give a talk that I give frequently and that comes from a BMJ article um, that we published some years ago, which is how to avoid being misled by people with conflict of interest. And so a, a very, uh, the important thing to realize is people, um, there is suppression of data. There is sometimes uh, through the, the basic way the pharmaceutical industry lies and misleads, the way it lies is to suppress data, and that is a problem. But most of the time, the industry-led studies are done well with low risk of bias. So um, you, can, you can believe that, you can essentially believe that the results are accurate. What the problem is, is in the spin that goes with it, is in the distortion and the way the results are interpreted. And it, it strikes me that there's a, such an irony here because because it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but but, but the, the rise of the evidence-informed approach has given us the tools to see the way that spin, that is to see the way that spin works out. So that, that is absolutely right. And that is why the industry has tried to co-opt it. But 
It has raised the standards of the evidence. They are now required to follow certain rules that make it more likely that trustworthy evidence will be provided. Now they do their best to distort the results. And at this conference, we've seen many examples of that. But you're absolutely right. You've also seen in the presentations that the tools of evidence-based medicine allow one to deconstruct those messages and see what's really going on. Absolutely right. You're listening to a conversation with Gordon Guyatt, the man who came up with the term evidence-based medicine. And we speak next about systematic reviews, those summaries of the best evidence produced by Cochrane and other groups that are the cornerstone of this new approach. And I asked him about his view on systematic reviews and whether he saw them as trustworthy evidence to base our decisions on. I have to admit that um, there is some inconsistency in the quality of these, but in general the answer is yes. And there's been then a focus on presenting summaries that are appropriate in lay terms and summaries that are appropriate for the scientific community and so on. And those are definite positive steps forward. So if someone asks you, a friend or a loved one, uh, you know, they're considering having some sort of treatment or test or whatever, I mean, would you you, or do you refer them to to things like uh, Cochrane Reviews or do you refer them elsewhere? What, What do you do? Well... I still have a strong belief in uh, the interaction between the health professional and the patient. And a Cochrane review might be very good, but there is still a background and a context that is very difficult to capture. And if you're the right type of person, yes, the Cochrane review would be great. Um, uh, but it would require also learning a lot about the context of the situation and the background. And I myself, when I'm a patient, I like to have the conversation with the doctor and, and rely on the doctor as well. What I would tell my friends, loved ones, whatever, is make sure you have a healthcare provider you can trust who is evidence-based Uh, and who is able to discuss the evidence with you and put it into context that is most meaningful and appropriate for you. It's not always the easiest thing, is it, to find someone like that? It is not. I can admit that it is not always easy to find that, but that that would be the ideal, certainly. Let's move on from from evidence-based medicine to something else you've been doing in in more recent years, This helping create this whole new system called the GRADE system. Essentially, I think in a nutshell, a system for for ranking the quality of evidence, for saying, well, this evidence is reliable, but this evidence is not so reliable, and and that's important when you're forming guidance for doctors and, and, and others. I mean, tell me about GRADE and how important you think that's been. Well, you started this part by saying, um, let's move on from evidence-based medicine. I would say, um, let's talk about how evidence-based medicine has evolved and what is the heart of evidence-based medicine at the moment. And I personally think the great approach, again, a, a big conflict of interest since I've been extremely involved with its development, but it is at the heart and forefront of evidence-based medicine. So what was evidence-based medicine about from the beginning? It was to differentiate more from less trustworthy evidence. That was there right from the beginning. At the beginning of EBM, it was a useful but somewhat simplistic characterization or categorization. 
randomized trials were at the top, and then observational studies, and uh, then uh, physiologic studies, and then clinical experience. That was useful in its time and in its place. But what we have done since the year 2000 is to develop a much more sophisticated approach. And it says, yes, randomized trials start as the highest quality, but there are all sorts of things that can go awry that lower its trustworthiness. Observational studies start as low quality, but you have some instances with huge effects where... In fact, we're quite sure on the basis of observational studies that this is high, it represents high quality evidence of large benefits. The, the dangers of smoking, for example. The danger, so that stopping smoking, yes, the dangers of smoking, we are very sure about the dangers of smoking. And thus, if you can manage to stop smoking, we're very sure about its benefits. Absolutely. Without right. any randomized trials. Without any randomized trials. That's absolutely right. That's a, that's a great example. So, what has happened is we've developed this far more sophisticated system for looking at the quality of, of the evidence. And so that we see is the forefront of evidence-based medicine. And the approach also, this grade approach, also we've done a lot of work on going from the evidence to the recommendations. And that's a important part of the process that we've worked on as well. And I think I'm right in saying that grade has again just taken off around the world lots of organizations using it and so on. So, so. Yeah, well, over 100 organizations we like to advertise. And nowadays, another thing that's happened within academic medicine in the last 10 or 20 years has been uh, that we now know who pays attention to your articles in terms of their uptake and in the amount they're cited. And these articles that we have written describing the great approach, have extraordinary citation rates. So, yes, lots of prominent organizations using GRADE, and we're, we're quite happy with its uptake. You're listening to The Recommended Dose, today with Gordon Guyatt, who, like previous guests on this podcast, including John Ioannidis and Rita Redberg, is a little sceptical about the benefits of some of the celebrated new medical technologies, including genomics and artificial intelligence. I am extremely sceptical. <laughs> so we spent untold billions on the Human Genome Project, its impact in medical care has been minimal. And telling people they have twice the risk of, well, first of all, most of these genetic associations are not twice the risk. It's 1.0, it's, it's trivial increases in risk. Uh, overall, it's been a big disappointment. And there have been isolated places where, you know, breast cancer risk genes and so on. There have been isolated places, uh, uh, metabolism of some drugs and so on. There's been isolated places where it has really improved care. But they are few and far between, and they are isolated. And I don't see that changing. So, yes, it's made a contribution, but in terms of a whole range of, in terms of the overall range of care, uh, if you were looking at the whole big picture, it's, it's, it's pretty trivial. And that, I don't think that's going to change. Similarly, uh, with artificial intelligence, uh, uh, 
I, I think it's being oversold and I th- I'm skeptical that it's going to make a big impact as well. Gordon, let's change track now. Let's shift a bit and talk a bit about you, if we can. <laughs> let's start with your upbringing. I mean, one thing reading about your life preparing for this interview, I was struck by the fact that you live in the same town that you I were grew up born in. in and grew up in, I think. That, that's that's rare these days. I mean, yes. we're talking about Hamilton, a smallish industrial and medical town in Canada near the US border. Tell me a bit about that life growing up there. Um, well, uh, so why am I still in Hamilton? By a series of extraordinary coincidences. So what was the first? I decided I wanted to be a doctor, but I decided relatively late So um, I hadn't done even as much as a single biology course in high school. I'd done no sciences whatsoever. And now I wanted to go to medical school. And I I made this decision uh, at the end of my second year of university. So I continued with my English and psychology, which was what I was doing. But then I said, okay, I'll also take grade 13 science at night and so on. So I started this. And, but it was going to be a long, it was going to be a long road to learn the sciences and get the grades. That could, and, but there was one medical school in Canada, just one, that let you in um, without a without the sciences, lo and behold, that was McMaster University in my hometown of Hamilton. So I get into that medical. So I apply and I get into the only medical school in the country that would have taken me, McMaster. And I then find out that it is not only unusual in its um, in the fact that they're taking people without a science program, but it has what was unique at the time, a problem-based, self-directed learning, which was suitable for me, I believed suitable for most people. So now I'm going to medical school, the only medical school I'm eligible for with a particular approach to medical education, which I find highly suitable. All right. I find out that... I'm very interested in this clinical epidemiology. And this same institution has the best clinepi department in the world. The place I'm born in, it's the only medical school I could get into. It has this program that's particularly suitable. And then it has the best clinepi department in the world. Rather extraordinary coincidences. Yeah, and and your family, I think I'm right in saying your father's family had lived in that area for generations. Yeah, they they uh, they emigrated from Britain to that area about 1820. Wow, and your mum? My mum had a, a very interesting history of her own. She was a Czech Jew and concentration camp victim. Uh, lost all her family, virtually all her family, in the Holocaust and then emigrated to Canada after the war. And met your father at that point. And, I mean, do you, do you reflect on how the lives of, of those two people, your parents, have impacted on you and, and your work and your vision? Yes, well... Um, or you, are you your own person? Well, none of us are. I, I strongly believe that uh, anybody who thinks they're their own person has, has missed something. They missed something big. Um, what I see from my dad, my dad was an extremely self-disciplined individual. 
And yeah, uh, I can see that coming through. Yeah, and I always thought, as I was growing up, I always thought I was a lazy lout in comparison to him. Uh, and uh, I, I only realized as a teenager, in fact, I had picked up much of his self-discipline, and that has been uh, that has been a huge influence. The other thing about the guy is he was he had a real love of the English language and precise use of the English language. So uh, that has influenced me, and turns out I've ended up a pretty good communicator in the English language, and he's contributed to that. Um, my mother, as a concentration camp victim, had, I think the influence of that is I've had an intense identification with the vulnerable and the disadvantaged, and the uh, what I referred to before, a uh, um, not only a willingness to upset people, but perhaps slightly enjoying it, came of the combination of my father. But the other thing about my father, a very competitive, somewhat belligerent type. So I picked up some of that, but justifying it when I could persuade myself anyway that, in fact, I was my uh, aggressive approach to whatever it is was on behalf of people who were vulnerable or disadvantaged. And that gave me the, the, the uh, freedom to uh, justify very assertive approaches. There's so much to talk about about your life, Gordon, but I mean, you've had a whole sort of sub-theme going on where you've written, you've been writing columns in the media, you have, uh, you, you have a big profile internationally, clearly. Um, but I was surprised to read that you've run for Parliament several times. Four times. And, and why? Why did you do well, that? Well, because another aspect of what I, what I was doing. So um, way back when I was doing my residency training, I helped found a medical group call, which we called ourselves the Medical Reform Group. And what that was was about uh, its fundamental, fundamental notion was that high-quality care should be available to all Canadians, irrespective of your ability to pay. That was the essential heart of, heart of it. A, a publicly funded universal yes, health care system. Exactly, a publicly funded universal health care system of high quality. <laughs> so... Um, and and uh, and many of my our physician colleagues would did that did, that did not appeal to them. They would have been preferred to be able to charge patients and so on and so forth. And we had a lot of drama around uh, that tension. And and when governments introduced legislation about uh, forbidding extra billing, anyway, and big fights, and we were. We were a tiny group uh, against the majority of the overwhelming majority of the profession. But this but, developed a taste for, for, for political activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, absolutely. It developed a taste for political activity. And um, so I was the one of the group who tended to write the press releases and so on. And of every... Ten press releases I wrote, one might get picked up, and you know, and the the uh, then the local New Democratic Party, which is the social Canadian Social Democratic Party, doesn't exist in the states, um, but the uh, um, the local riding association came to me and said, asked me to to carry their standard and run in the federal election, and I thought, well. 
Uh, I fortunately, it would have been a personal catastrophe if I'd actually won, but I realized there was very little risk of that. But the Canadian, um, the Canadian elections, the election campaign is 30 days, and you have 30 days where you become a public figure, and people will listen to you in ways that they won't at any other time. And so I thought, hey, here is an opportunity that uh, uh, as opposed to writing all these press releases early in the morning that nobody is paying any attention to, I can for 30 days have a public voice. And uh, that felt satisfying enough that I did it four times. And why would it have been a catastrophe if you actually hadn't got elected? Because I have... Because... Um, uh, uh, first of all, it would have been a family catastrophe in terms of my being off in Ottawa. But the capital of Canada. The capital of Canada. But in addition to that, um, I had my EBM mission to carry out. And I knew I had a strong sense that... Uh, who knows what I could have done as a politician. My party was very unlikely to ever be in power. Um, so I would just be sitting there in Parliament trying to have whatever influence I could as a minority as, as a minority party. Eh, who knows? But I believed I was making a... There seemed to be some evidence I was making a difference within the world of something also that I knew I was good at and could make a special contribution in. So for those reasons, having being elected would have been a catastrophe. Am I right in saying that one of the alternative career paths for you was was a novelist, that at some point in your, your well, so life you would very, have liked to write very, fiction? Very, very early on. So when I was... So what I did as an undergraduate is English and psychology, where English was the major and psychology was the minor. And I was very interested in literature. And the summer before I got into medical school, I went off to the Banff School of Fine Arts for the summer in a writing course and wrote the first part of what no doubt would have been a pathetic novel. But anyway, I wrote the first part of the novel. But probably fortunately, medical school ended all those that because I was completely occupied with medicine thereafter. Any recommendations of books? We often close these interviews with asking people if they've got any any books that they're passionate about, they want to tell the listenership about. Well, uh, yes. So this one alludes to a earlier part of the interview when you referred to are you your self-made person or whatever. So I really like the books of Malcolm Gladwell, a Canadian author, and... Uh, Particularly, uh, one of his books is called Outliers. And the point about Outliers is that we make far too much of our apparent personal characteristics in deter and of the particularly of very successful people. And in fact, if we look at our upbringing and our circumstances and our coincidences, and I feel like my life is. very obviously a series of such things as I've just told you about getting into the only medical school I could get into, finding it has the best epidemiology department in the world and so on, and having the most superb mentorship and et cetera. 
um, that the and, as I say, attributing, I can see easily where my some of my personal characteristics that have been advantageous, such as my self-discipline and uh, and my love and, and skills with the English language, I can trace all of this. And to, you know, claim it that anything other than our good fortune seems misguided. And this particular book, Outliers, tells a whole set of stories demonstrating that um, we, we, oh, we completely overplay personal, uh, uh, some sort of earned personal uh, characteristics when if we look at our, if we look at how we were brought up in an environment and the good fortune that has attended us along the way, that is what explains our success. Gordon, thank you very much. It's been, very, it's been a pleasure. That was Professor Gordon Guyatt on The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan. Thanks to Shauna Hurley and Cochrane Australia for production, BMJ for co-publishing and Jan Mutz for editing. If you enjoy this series, please recommend it to others. 